Hello, ladies and gentlemen, friends and family adoptees, friends and family of adoptees. I am your host, Mike McDonald. This is the Rambler. This is the Rambler podcast. This is my podcast. This is a show uh, where I, Mike McDonald, a Korean-American adoptee, interviews international and transracial adoptees from all over the world, mostly in America, but it could be all over the world. Like last week's episode with Kelsey Macklin, that took place. Uh, she lives in China. I mean, it was in New York for me, but it was in China for her. Uh, so, so that kind of thing happens. Are you not familiar with this show? I don't know if you're familiar with this show or not. This is the 46th episode, and this is actually a special episode because the episode that you're hearing right now, if you are subscribed on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean, then you know that this goes out weekly in an audio format like you're listening to right now. But this is a very special week because this week's guest is Nio Frank. And Nio Frank is a deaf Korean adoptee who's currently living in Washington, D.C. And so to aid in the deaf Korean adoptee and deaf adoptee community or deaf community that in general who might have a passing interest in adoption and adoptees, I have simultaneously put this episode up on YouTube, and there's going to be a different intro and outro as I'm recording this uh, at different times to allow for captioning, approved captioning by Nayo herself. Uh, We have put this up simultaneously on YouTube and iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Now, I want you to know that for the audio podcast and the YouTube video, the voice that you're hearing is of the interpreter, who is also a Korean adoptee, Jenna Williamson. And Jenna did a great job. I will caveat that on the YouTube video, the captioning is done. Uh, Nio's edited a little bit as well. Uh, the captions for the sign, she does ASL. But on my side, I've done the best I can to edit it so that uh, you understand who's speaking if Jenna is doing all the interpreting and she needs to catch up with what Nio is saying in ASL. Or there's been some confusion, needs to be cleared up, etc. Because typically, and this is something that I needed to learn, was that in an interview process such like this, uh, there's usually two interpreters, sign language interpreters, for uh, somebody like Nio, the deaf person who's doing the talking. But we only had Jenna at the time. And it was obviously, if you're a listener of the show, over an hour-long interview, which is crazy. So she did an hour-long interpretation by herself. And so that kind of uh, stuff needed to be worked out between myself, Nio, and Jenna as far as like the interpretation goes. And I think Jenna did a bang-up job, so thank you, Jenna, very much for interpreting between Nio and myself. That being said, uh, we're just going to get right into the interview because I want you guys to hear this. I think Nio is an incredible person and has an incredible story, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Nio, as told by the interpreter, as told through, I shouldn't say by, through the interpreter, Jenna Williamson. So thank you very much to both of them. I'll talk to you guys in a bit. Enjoy. Enjoy. So uh, welcome to The Rambler. This is going to be a very different and very special episode of the show, being that, A, it's the first time I'm going to be doing this on video from my show. I, I've done it with uh, CCI, China Children International, as a broadcast uh, from their end, asking me questions, more of an interview of me, which I've never done before either. Um, and also, we have a very special guest today who is a deaf adoptee. So this is very exciting. Hello. I'm very happy to have you guys here, and I also want to acknowledge uh, 
Jenna, who will be um, interpreting for us. Uh, and this is Natalie. Hi. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So um, you guys kind of reached out to me in terms of wanting to do this interview and kind of open the show up for a whole new audience that um, because it's an audio podcast, I'd really never considered before. So this is pretty awesome. I'm very happy to be doing this and happy to be working with you to kind of distribute your story to a broader audience of uh, deaf adoptees. Um, now you're kind of working on your master's degree right now, you said, right? Yes, that's correct. I'm at Gallaudet University. I'm actually here on campus and it's in Washington, D.C. So thank you for having me and making this possible, making this possible for deaf adoptees. It's really exciting. I'm very excited to have you, uh, as I've already stated. Um, how long have you guys had, uh, how long have you been in D.C., in the D.C. area? I've been here since 2014. I lived in San Francisco for seven years prior to that. And that was after I had graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology. That's where I got my undergraduate's degree. And I am a Korean adoptee, and I was adopted at 15 months. And I grew up in Cooperstown, New York. Oh, okay. So it's a little bit upstate. Right, right. Baseball Hall of Fame, right? That's right, yes. I actually haven't been up there, uh, despite the fact that I live in Rockland County. So the show is taking place right now from my seat in uh, New City, New York. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of that area. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's all right. Nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs> it's about, I would say, 20 to 30 minutes uh, north of the GWB. Okay, cool. Yeah. So how was growing up in Cooperstown, New York? I'm sorry. I feel like Cooperstown is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, it can't be in the middle of nowhere if the Baseball Hall of Fame is there. I mean, at least it's known for something. Uh, well, I think the village, uh, it's just like farms everywhere. It's uh, its about 1,600 people live there, I think. That's it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of small. Take away the tourists, of course. but Right, right. Well... I feel like a lot of people, when they think of New York, they automatically think of New York City, but they don't understand that the state itself right. is like really kind of broad, a lot of farms, a lot of small villages. Right, exactly. Definitely. So how was that kind of growing up in a small town in New York? So first of all, I just, I want to explain when uh, my adoptive parents, when they adopted me, they envisioned me being a hearing baby. Mm -hmm. So... And I and their second child out of um, I'm sorry they already had three biological children three sons and they wanted a little girl so they adopt decided to adopt me and when so one month after my adoption they found out that I was deaf mm. so my family decided to take uh, learn what's called signed exact English and and I was the only deaf person in that whole area in the whole town in that whole area oh my god. Now, I had some family members who also adopted kids from a Korea, uh, mm -hmm. but they were all hearing adoptees. Yeah. So I went to public school in this town, uh, kindergarten through second grade, and mm -hmm. I was the only deaf person. I used an interpreter. Now, they noticed that I had a lot of frustrations. I felt left out. I was struggling with communication. So my parents decided to put me in the Clark School. Mm. It's in North Hampton, Hampton okay. and I was eight years old then. 
Now, that school focused primarily on oral teaching, the oral method of communication, and mm-hmm. signing is not allowed there. So, really, school actually asked my family to stop signing. Um, so that's where I learned how to speak and lip read mm. and practice listening with hearing aids. Okay, that's really interesting that they would like keep you from signing there and and all that because it seems like it's a very effective way of communicating for the deaf community. Um, and I understand that lip reading is a big part of it, but do you feel like that method of teaching helped you out? <laughs> well, so that's a whole other controversy related with education for the deaf and for deaf children. And it's an ongoing debate that's been around forever. Mm. So let's see. And since the 19th century, this has been an issue. Wow. So, and the controversy is still kind of going on today. Oh, it's still raging today. Yes, absolutely. How how do you feel about that? There's no one answer. There's no one simple solution for that. Mm Mm-hmm. But in terms of my journey from the oral method, and it's called the oral method, to signing, and so, I'm sorry, I started signing, then went to the oral method, but I felt really frustrated, I uh, I felt very left out, and I had to match what the hearing standards of communication were. Mm. And then I went to RIT, Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology, and that's where I finally started to learn American Sign Language, ASL, and then I felt that I could reclaim my deaf identity there. Wow. And that's when I got full communication. I was able to interact with other deaf folks who signed. And that was my, I mean, so this is my personal opinion. This was the way to go. But today, you know, deaf children, they experience language deprivation. Hmm. Them, who, many parents who support the oral method, these hearing folks and teachers and specialists and audiologists, Speech therapy, they're really, really reinforcing the fact that deaf people have to adhere to hearing standards of society and hearing standards of communication. Hmm. But it's not their natural language. Right. So for, you know, and there are varying ranges of hearing with deaf folks. Um, They can be profoundly deaf. They can have some hearing. Mm -hmm. So I definitely advocate signing and deaf education with sign. Because that is natural language. That's that's the deaf natural language how hard was that for you to learn american sign language at such kind of more of an advanced age at, i'm assuming like around 18 or so 18 18 now granted some people considered me a native signer because of the c um the signed exact english from when i was really young mm-hmm. it was a different method of sign communication uh c is not recognized as a language. However, American Sign Language is recognized as an official language. Hmm. The reason why is signed exact English follows English English word structure, the grammar of English. Right. So you, you memorize English linguistics, essentially, mm-hmm. a English linguistic background. Yeah. Whereas American Sign Language, it's, it has a variance of, of the grammatical structure. Yeah, I think I remember that. Uh, me and my friend in seventh grade were trying to teach each other ASL, and it didn't really go well because it's like tr- it's like trying to learn another language essentially um, with your hands and using your body. And you know, I think I, I still count on my hands in ASL like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten because <laughs> I find it more convenient for me than to use both hands. But um, it, it did kind of it was interesting to me that it did have a different grammatical structure than American English. 
Um, what is the purpose of that? Because it's it's closer to like German or Korean. That the is it? Am I correct? Is the verb like towards the end of the sentence rather than in the middle? Yes, it it is. It it does have different grammatical structure, but I'm not as fluent and as much of a language expert in terms of talking about the linguistic structure of ASL. But in terms of the, it it's also. What I'd like to say is that it's also with facial expressions, besides the finger spelling and the handshapes and, and the, the actual signs, you have to include the face, mm -hmm. movements, facial, facial expression is a key part of the grammar of ASL. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. And it, it's, I think, do you kind of mix those methods together, the oral method that you were talking about, being able to read lips and then also sign at the same time, are those kind of merged together for you? So actually what I try to, what I've tried to do is let go of the oral method because, I'm, I mean, that is a part of my past and it's a part of my educational history. And because of that skill that I learned in terms of oral and lip reading, it is possible today to use that when communicating with my family because my family mm. doesn't sign. Yeah. Still don't this day. So that had to be frustrating growing up for you then, not being able to effectively really communicate with your family if they can't sign. Right. It, it was tough, yes, but during that time, they thought that was the way to, to live. They thought that was it. So they just kind of, you know, I kind of had to put up with it. But looking back mm. on it, I thought it would have been a lot easier if my family had signed. But unfortunately, I just learned to accept it. Mm. But I can't blame, blame my family for making that choice. It was, it was more of the system as a whole and how the system affected that decision the medical perspective of deafness. Yeah. And I have more of a deaf culture perspective now and the deaf culture perspective is a lot different. So now I've let go of the oral method. Mm -hmm. you know, I, whenever I go out to restaurants or any public places, I don't use my voice. I don't use an oral method. I'd rather write with a paper and pen or gesture. So I feel like that I'm being more myself that way rather than trying to play the guessing game with you know, lip reading, mm. you know, so a hearing person who doesn't know how to interact with a deaf person will automatically think, oh, I can talk with fine with them and they can lip read me. And it's it's often just communication is lost that way. Yeah. Well, you... I completely turn off my voice and I just sign. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I don't I don't do that mixture that you're talking about at all. I completely have removed that oral part of my past and I completely sign and I completely use ASL. Yeah. It's just for me. So you said you were adopted at 15 months, right? Yes, that's right. 15 months. And did the – so was it a matter of the adoption agency not just telling your parents that you were deaf or they honestly didn't know or what was the story? Because at 15 months, I think you could tell whether or not a child is deaf, right? Right. So – and that is – I don't know the full story. My adoptive father is a doctor. Mm-hmm. So he did, he got a translation from the, um, the Korean doctor. It was a, a medical form and he got a translation from that. And there was some suspicion in terms of 15 months onwards that there was possible, um, there might've been an overdose of antibiotics and that might have been what caused my hearing loss. It wasn't an overnight hearing loss. It was a gradual hearing loss. I see. So that paperwork might have, you know, explained it, but you know, specifically, we don't know. That's my opinion. I think there are still a lot of questions and a lot of, um, you know, things that aren't answered in terms of being born. You know, I 
I had to go far from home and back. I was sick in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I, there had a lot of BM issues. There were a lot of things that came up often. And I think there were four, um, I'm sorry, this, this is genetically interpreted, I'm correcting. So there are four different foster homes that I went through. Oh, wow. Was in the foster home, I was taken back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I was taken back to heal and recover. And then I'd go to the foster home and then I would get sick again. So I felt like through that process, it might have been the medication that was given to me during those times that I was in the foster home and going back and forth between the hospital and the foster homes that I was getting sick. And that's what probably caused my hearing loss. I see. Why do you, Did you ever find out why they moved you from home to home to home? I haven't been able to do any in-depth research on that. That's just what the paperwork said. Mm -hmm. So something related to my intestines. I see. Another another uh, adoptee uh, mystery <laughs> to solve. <laughs> so it always seems like something in the past is always like a mystery. Um, right. And so up through eighth grade, uh, you were eight, right? When you when you moved to the new school, and then up till then, how did you 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 basically just had to interact with your parents like by by the lip reading and you with the C interpretation, the C language. Right. So, yeah, up until eight, I was using uh, lip reading and the oralist method. I had hearing aids mm -hmm. both ears. Okay. And tried to hear as best as I could and lip read. Mm -hmm. um, and then from eight to 11, I lived in the dorm and my parents stayed in Cooperstown and I was in the dorm for the deaf school. So I was a residential deaf student at that time from eight to 11. Oh, okay. After that, I went back to Cooperstown and... Um, went went to my high school there, and again, only the only deaf person. And I used oral interpreters in the school system, not sign language interpreters. Oh, got so it. So it was um, they were just repeating what my teachers were saying, and I would have to lip read through those oral interpreters what my teachers were saying. That doesn't seem very effective. <laughs> How did you find that? Well, I mean, I didn't know any better at that time. Yeah. I feel like that was just the only choice I had. So basically you had like a, a special aid that went around with you and you had to read their lips all day. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really sorry. That sounds terrible. Uh, and you know, in such a small town also besides being the only deaf person, I mean, how diverse was that community as well? It was predominantly white. Yes. Yeah. So compounding the issue of being one of the only minorities probably in that town, you're also deaf. <laughs> uh, I could understand why you would feel kind of isolated and alone in that scenario. Did your parents um, bring you around to any adoption-related events or any kind of Korean culture integration or even a restaurant or anything? So, well... Okay, as I mentioned earlier, there are other Korean adoptees in town. Mm -hmm. Their families were also, so those families had adopted other Korean kids too. And that was the, you know, we had exposure, but they were, um, you know, they were hearing. They didn't sign. Right. But, um, so there's a Korean culture camp in Albany, New York. Um, but I knew it was going to be an issue for me because I was going to be deaf. So yeah. how it's communicate with them at the Korean culture camp. So mm -hmm. they wouldn't have minded letting me go there, but 
in terms of exposure to Asian culture, I mean, I remember little things here and there, you know, buying dolls for me or uh, videotapes and books related with Asian culture, but actually bringing me to Asian culture events or things like that, I, I don't remember that at all. Mm. No. So it sounds like you wanted to kind of explore and meet these other Korean adoptees, but you felt this limitation because of your disability. When did you start being able to kind of overcome that? Okay, well, my journey is very long. I think at that time growing up, it it was more of, you know, I just thought I was different just because I was deaf. That was it. Mm-hmm. Because the communication barrier. But I didn't think about the fact that I'm also a person of color. I'm also an adoptee. So that wasn't in my mind at that time growing up. Right. So when I went in, when I went to school at RIT, that's when I got involved and immersed in the, in the deaf culture, the deaf community, the signing community. But I didn't identify myself as a Korean adoptee yet. Mm-hmm. I remember trying to meet, well, in terms of my undergraduate friends, they were all white. And so that was my interaction. I remember meeting some Asian deaf students, but I didn't feel a connection with them. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I had some internalized racism. I would you know, say, oh, those Asian kids, I'm different from them. Mm-hmm. You know, to the Asian deaf club and I'd go to meetings and just feel no connection with it at all. I just felt like that's you know, I prefer to call myself an American girl. So, you know, I was much more involved and immersed with the deaf community because I hadn't had that socialization all my life up until then. Yeah. And it was college and, and that was the time and the communication was there. So that's what I really was taking advantage of. Mm. Now, when I graduated, I moved to San Francisco and I didn't plan. I just had flown there for a conference. I bought a one-way ticket. I flew to San Francisco and I just fell in love with the city. I met many deaf folks there, but they were all Asian. And I just felt such a bond and they exposed me to the Asian culture there. Asian food. I had never really experienced Korean barbecue before until I moved to San Francisco. Oh, wow, yeah. And I'd never heard of dim sum before until San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so from there, that's where I found my Asian identity. Yeah. But I hadn't, you know, the adoption agency, or excuse me, the adoption identity was not there yet. Yeah. RIT, um, during my undergraduate, I found my queer identity there. So when I moved to San Francisco, you know, I interacted with, you know, I, I was just really happily immersed in that community. And I was traveling to Asia and I went back to Korea for the first time. And that was 2009. And I was in Taipei, um, Taiwan. They hosted the Deaf Olympics there in 2009. So oh, I went cool. back to that. So I went there and interacted and socialized and met all kinds of folks. And I decided to backpack by myself. And I went to Korea alone for 10 days. Now, granted, like I said, I my adoption agent, my adoption identity was not there yet. So I flew there and I didn't feel like, oh, this is where I was born. You know, I just, there are a lot of different thoughts going through my head, but I wasn't really able to process it. I wasn't yeah. able to process my adoption, my adoptive identity yet. Mm-hmm. I just let me go and do this, but I just thought, okay, well, this is part of my 10 country tour that I was doing, it was part of that 10 country circuit. Yeah. So, but when I got back to San Francisco and then, oh, I also volunteered in the Philippines and that was in 2012. And I started dating my wife at that time in 2012. And then I came back to San Francisco in 2013 
And then at the end of the year, 2013, my wife and I got married. And then we decided we wanted to pursue graduate school. And that's how we ended up. We, that's how we decided to come to D.C. for graduate school. And the move to D.C., that's when I met other deaf adoptees, deaf signing adoptees. And I thought before then, you know, it would be, I'm good. I know who I am. But then I found that there was another facet of my identity. And it was the adoption part of my identity. And I just felt like, wow, this is a whole new world for me. And I completely got immersed in that. So it was a deaf identity part of me and an adoption identity part of me. So DC has been uh, really a part of my adoption identity. And that's how I got into my master's degree thesis. And the thesis is deaf female Korean adoptees and their identity development in the framework of intersectionality. Wow. So there's a lot to explore in what you just said. Um, what an amazing story. First of all, congratulations on your wedding. That's awesome. Um, it sounds like you've been able to travel a lot, which is fantastic. How was it? We're going we're gonna to kind of go step by step through all of that. Um, so moving to San Francisco from RIT, I could see that being kind of a watershed moment just because of just the diversity level. I mean, San Francisco obviously has a very rich California in general and very rich history with in terms of Asian immigration to that area. Um, what was it like eating Korean barbecue for the first time, eating dim sum for the first time, exploring your kind of the Asian side of you? Oh, wow. It was, it was like reconnecting with my blood. It was like I could remember my blood again. I, I ate and I just felt like, oh, I love this so much. I loved every moment of it. And I'm, I'm definitely a foodie to begin with. Well, it, I really discovered my foodie side my <laughs> with Asian food because mm -hmm. I didn't grow up eating a lot of Asian food. You right, know, my family right. didn't, weren't, wasn't crazy about Asian food. So you know, I felt like this, this just woke me up. This was an experience that just, you know, I was able to, and I was able to eat bulgogi. Mm -hmm. And all oh, the bulgogi was amazing. And I just <laughs> with the bulgogi. Yes. <laughs> I can imagine that. As soon as like that it's so juicy and once the meat hits your lips, it's just like, yes, what have I been missing? This is amazing. <laughs> and then how yeah. like so San Francisco is just a fantastic place, San Francisco. Um I can imagine like all this just culture that you didn't think about within you kind of connecting to that city, which is such a character in and of itself. Um you said you kind of identified uh, or, or you found your queer identity there. Um, there's a strong uh, LGBT community in San Francisco, obviously. Um, and I, I feel like San Francisco is one of the most welcoming cities in the United States. I, I, there's a bunch of places that I would characterize as like very friendly to not so friendly. New York's friendly in their own New York way. But San Francisco is super open to, to everybody, it seems like. Was that just like such a relief for you, kind of being able to let yourself go out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely, definitely. San Francisco will always have a special place in my heart. I mean, if it wasn't for San Francisco, I wouldn't have become who I am today, really. San Francisco, I mean, thanks. I'm so grateful for my friends, my community there. I was able to discover the, um, the concept of social justice there as well. I was working with Deaf Domestic Violence Agency there um, while I was in San Francisco. 
So it was really, it just blew my mind and opened my mind. And I realized you know, there was so much more and I had missed out on a lot of that growing up. And you're exactly right. San Francisco is a very unique community, especially out of the U.S. They're extremely open and diverse. And there's so many different layers of identity there. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so from there, what was the decision to travel around, especially in Asia, backpack it, go to Korea for the first time, go to the Philippines, go to Taipei? I mean, these are very diverse areas to kind of explore where you just kind of got that taste of bulgogi and you were like, I need to reconnect myself with Asia at large. So I knew, I already knew about the Deaf Olympics happening every four years Mm -hmm. all over the world. But the first time it was hosted in an Asian country, I felt like my friends, so my friends and I wanted to go. So we decided to get tickets. So there were four of us who flew together to Taiwan. And I thought, while I'm there, I was very fortunate that time I didn't have work because I was, I was working at a contract position. So I thought, you know, just for this three months, let me go backpacking. And that's where I'll start is Taipei. So enjoy the Death Olympics. Uh, and also, that's really the best time to interact and meet with, you know, other people and say, oh, I'm going to these places. Do you know any deaf people there? So you can network while you're at an event like that. So I was able to network at the Deaf Olympics and they connected me with different deaf folks in all the different deaf countries I was visiting, which was really great. So I was able to have a richer experience because of that, because I was connecting with other deaf people. So the deaf mm. Korean community in yeah. Korea, you know, I was able to connect with them. So it was richer as an adoptee. And I was able to pick up a little bit of Korean sign language, which is very different from American sign language. Yeah. So it was really cool, really amazing. And, and then touring that area as a deaf person was really great. You know, I, I interacted through Facebook and the deaf community, and I was able to network using all these different modalities. Mm. And, you know, it's really great to be able to connect with all the deaf folks in different communities. And that's what I thought I would take advantage of at that time. Um, you know, Taipei at that time was just such a fantastic place to meet all these deaf people because they're all flocking there for the Olympics. Um, and I met my wife, Anna's sister there. And, and I said, um, you know, I'm going to the Philippines. So she offered for me to stay with her family at the Philippines. So it's just that kind of, you know, you just happen to be at the right place at the right time and when you get connected, it was just an incredible experience. Well, that's amazing. How difficult is it to communicate in such a form like that? I mean, the Olympics, obviously, a multinational event, multinational affair with all kinds of different cultures and languages kind of convening in the same place. Is it very difficult or easy to communicate using ASL or is it just a jumble of hands everywhere? <laughs> what is it? What is it like? So the Death Olympics is very well organized. There's many different interpreters. Mm-hmm. There are many uh, what's called deaf interpreters and they are people who perhaps they're from Korea they know Korean sign language as well as American sign language, as well as international sign language. Now, it's not a universal sign language, but it is in uh, it's a kind of a developing language where you are able to um, if you know ASL and you know Korean sign language, they might use international sign language um, 
Yeah. And that would be the kind of happy medium in order to communicate. Um, you know, but in, in terms of communication, you know, deaf people use gesture naturally. So it's an easy mode of communication where we, you know, we share identities being deaf and it, it just becomes much more smooth and easy to communicate as a deaf person. So deaf education, I mean, really it started from, uh, with the influence of France. So France had a, um, the French sign language had a strong influence on American sign language. Mm. And so, so again, I was talking about the, the founding of deaf education, the influence from France, and then where ASL had developed uh, from French sign language in the U.S., and then from there, deaf education took off in the U.S. And then there were other deaf folks who went to other countries, and they helped uh, develop other countries, their deaf education in their specific and it can be from American Sign Language, but it tends to be changed and transformed into their country's language and their country's culture. Oh, so okay. So that person from another country, you typically can get kind of a basic gist of what the communication is um, mm. because there might be some similarities and there's some things that we can connect on. So, yeah. Okay. So it's not like impossible, like there are completely different language, like English to Korean or anything like that. There's a recent base stem of sign language that you can kind of get a, you can communicate pretty fairly easily. Right. Right. You know, it's, you use gestures, you use body language, facial expressions, and that, you know, you use all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Because I was wondering um, when you travel around to different countries and everything like that, has the advent of technology made it easier to communicate for you in all these different places and kind of how is that? It made it easier. Absolutely. So face, uh, Facebook, I mean, pretty much. I mean, there are so many people, deaf people who use Facebook. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might ask my friend or, or they can contact their friends, um, you know, to connect me with people from their, from specific countries and networking through Facebook, you know, so that's how I met deaf folks in Korea. Now, I also met some who had already, you know, they were in Taiwan as well. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, oh, hey, can you give me a tour or can you connect with people or your friends since I'm heading over to Korea? And can you, you know, show me what you'd like to do every day? And that was really amazing, the networking. Yeah. You know, so I grew up going on family vacations with my parents. But in terms of being a tourist, you know, so I, I was I, I knew the tourist experience, but I wanted more of the experience to be a local and ha enjoy the local things and experience mm -hmm. life in those countries as a local. You know, what are the locals eating? What are they doing? And I wanted to I wanted to know and understand their life and their lifestyle rather than the tourist approach. But technology is absolutely I mean, Facebook is was huge. Is huge. Yeah, I think and that's not just for the deaf community, I mean anywhere, right? I mean that's mostly how I get interviews when I'm traveling to a different place, like even like Indianapolis was a good example. I was like, I'm not going to, I was traveling to Indianapolis and I was like, there's not going to be any adoptees here, but let me just go on Facebook and be like, if there's anybody who wants to do an interview, please get in contact with me. And I got a couple of emails and I was like, this is amazing. Like, cause there are all these adoptees everywhere and you may not be like friends with them necessarily, but you can connect with them and then become friends later through ways that, never were possible before so pretty incredible uh facebook thanks <laughs> for not sponsoring this but you know we appreciate your service anyways <laughs> how was it 
going to Korea for the first time. Oh, it was very overwhelming. Yeah, of course. But my experience was similar with many other adoptees in terms of, you know, going to Korea for the first time, all the different thoughts that go through your head. You know, is that possibly somebody who's related to me? You know, is this a place where, you know, this is a place where people look like me? Uh My mind was just blown by that. But at the same time, I did, uh, in terms of culture and people, you know, I was... I was unsure about them being open about my identity mm. and, you know, I just, I, you know, I really had a positive experience from the deaf Koreans you know, in the, in the deaf community there. They were very open and welcoming and warm. They were really happy to introduce me uh, to other folks and show me around. So that really helped my experience become very positive because of the deaf Koreans. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know what it would have been like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did go back to my orphanage where I was adopted from. And uh, I communicated back and forth with paper and pen. Um, I was able to look through my case file and I saw photographs, uh, excuse me, photo ID, mm. a very small, you know, black and white picture. Yeah. My uh, biological father, which was. Oh, wow. But. I haven't really done it a lot of investigation on that. You know, mm. at that time, I was still very gullible about the concept of, you know, this is, oh, is this credible? Is this true information? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to react to this. Right. And wouldn't let me take a picture of it. So, you know, I was bummed about that. But the people who who met with me were very friendly, and they were willing to translate the forms into English, um, mm-hmm. the and then our writing back and forth from Korean to English, um, and I was able to ask questions. But I was already very overwhelmed. Yeah. And looking back on it, I wasn't prepared for that. Mm. So, at that time, the bird flu had was you know epidemic and oh yeah prevented um, you know my travels. They were um, you know. The babies weren't allowed to visit because of the bird flu. And that was in 2009. So I went back in 2013, and I tried to ask more questions, but it was the same. Um, you know, I said, do you have my biological, biological father's photo, and can I ask more questions? And um, it was very veiled, and, and they weren't forthcoming. But I am still – I'm very much motivated to search for my biological family. And I did visit where, um, so that the baby stay, I felt that was just, I was able to come first full circle. I'm sorry. I went to where the babies were at the orphanage. So I was able to hold babies and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just an incredible experience for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, uh, I understand why you would be overwhelmed. It's a very overwhelming experience to to go and do those kinds of things, and it's tough. I I feel like um, when you're not prepared and you go there and you they give you your file and you see all these pictures and information that you previously were unexposed to, and you're trying to take all of that in in addition to trying to get in touch with your Korean roots again, and smelling the smells and seeing the sights and really just learning what Korea is like. Mike, can you hear me? 
Yep. Okay. I think we, we uh, froze for a moment. Now we got you back. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. We're good. So what was the last, can you repeat your question? Oh, it was more just a statement about, you know, I can understand how you were overwhelmed um, going to Korea for the first time, um, smelling the smells, seeing the sights. And then on top of that, going to uh, the orphanage and seeing your file, being exposed to information that you've never seen before, seeing a picture that you've never seen before. And how frustrating that is that they won't give you more. It's like it's almost like a tease. It's like here's a little bit of information, but. Not so much that, you know, we're going to answer all your questions for you. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you move to, you go back to San Francisco and then you move to Washington, D.C. And you have this whole other community here on the East Coast now um, with deaf Korean adoptees for your graduate work. First of all, that's amazing that there's a whole sub-community that I've never even been exposed to, have heard a whole lot about? I mean, how big is the community of of deaf Korean adoptees? So there's no statistical information, but through Facebook, again, Facebook, I've tried to connect with deaf Korean adoptees, and so far I've connected about 25. Wow. So I do feel like there are more Mm -hmm. out there. So when I came to D.C., I met folks who sign, like Jenna, who's interpreting for me, and... Um, you know, and it wasn't people who lived specifically in DC, but all over the US. And through the, through, you know, these connections, I was able to get connected with not only deaf, but hearing and deaf Korean adoptees. And we were able to, um, but I, uh, there's no specific organization or agency or group just for deaf Korean adoptees. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in terms of my pursuit of my master's in deaf studies, I was thinking I w- I'm doing a lot more introspective work on deaf identity, but there is not research in terms of deaf adoptees and their perspective. There yeah. are some related with adopt um, adoption professionals, deaf adopt um, deaf parents who who have adopted from their perspectives, but in terms of that adoptee's perspective, there's nothing. So I thought this is perfect. This is my opportunity yeah. to do this work on the adoptee's perspective. So, you know, in terms of research in general, there's a lot of dialogue and discourse from uh, the adoptee's perspective. I mean, it's still rare, um, you know, these, ter- these kind of studies, but being a deaf Korean adoptee, I wanted to get that perspective. Mm-hmm. The goal of the thesis is so the deaf studies so this dialogue about you know deaf studies but then in ter- and then putting the adoption studies you know deaf using deaf culture and whatnot um, there are a lot of deaf parents who have adopted children and they are either specifically they're looking for deaf children to adopt or they're open to either deaf or hearing so I, so I've met about 25 um, in terms of hearing, and they have hearing or deaf parents, but I have been very surprised to meet these adoptees. And they're deaf Korean adoptees who are adopted by deaf parents, which is really cool. But it's really interesting to see all of their different identities and their development and mm-hmm. how, you know, the variances, you know, what their deaf identities are and what they mean to them. You know, so their deaf identity and then their adoption identity and 
you know, if they have deaf parents, you know, was the communication there or the communication was there, but what did their adoption identity look like? Yeah. So the deaf adoptees who are adopted by hearing parents who don't sign, you know, what, what has their identity development looked like? And Mm -hmm. it's really fascinating. So I know that the research is still kind of ongoing your master's is still kind of ongoing, but what kind of similar themes have you found in terms of your 25 deaf adoptees that you've kind of talked to so far? Um, what I've found in doing a lot of the interviews and conversations that I have for the show is that there are a lot of similar themes, similar experiences that adoptees have with regards to the way they grew up, the community, the communities they grew up in and like how they fit in with those communities when they discover themselves, uh, especially women, a lot of them who are just kind of starting to get into discovering their adoptee part of their identity. It's usually when they have a kid uh, or some life-changing event like that, that they start exploring those. Are you finding similar themes with the deaf adoptee community that you're working with? So I'm still trying to figure out, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm assessing what the development of the deaf identity looks like and, and that frame of intersectionality as well, how that plays a part and acknowledging each facet of the identity, you know, what's similar and common. Mm-hmm. But, but I can't speak for all the deaf community adoptees. Uh, you know, talking yeah, of with, course. I haven't talked really in depth with each of them. You know, I've, um, we have a group on Facebook. It's a closed group. Uh, but the journeys are also vastly different. Mm-hmm. So I think with regards to, you know, the communication, based on their communication styles, you know, with their adoptive families. Now, whether, well, in general, adopt, the adoption community, you know, there's so many conferences and books and yeah. shops, but they're not accessible, you know, right. to, uh, do they think about providing sign language interpreting services? Mm-hmm. Adoptees understand, you know, we need, we need to make sure that they're deaf adoptees who get the resources and the accessibility. So, I think, you know, it's time to make sure that these Korean adoptee events have the resources and accessibility available for them. Yeah. Um, because the deaf adoptees, um, the, the reconciliation with, uh, with their parents and um, social workers or adoption professionals, they are aware, they should be aware, and they should go through the process of making things accessible. But, um, you know, there are a lot of movies and documentaries out there. They don't mm-hmm. think adding captions to their movies. You know? so uh-huh. Yeah. You know, let's, Hey, let's make sure this is captioned. This is accessible. You know, this is a great documentary. Can you, can you add captioning? And mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of us who are deaf adoptees and we do exist. Um, but there, but there are not always resources available for us. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to, you know, have this, uh, have the associations and the entities out there be more aware of our existence. And, you know, I'm taking up the charge to remind them. And in terms of the difference between deaf adoptees who are adopted by deaf parents, they have, you know, the signing communication. But in terms of that, um, you know, working through the identity, but they have that lack of biological privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, is there a thought about that? Do they think about that? Their connection with communication, but then that lack. And then deaf adoptees like myself who were adopted by hearing parents, my parents are not involved in the deaf community at all. Right. So I feel like 
I have an opportunity to really unpack who I am and get a connection with other people and do that search on my own. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you, you know, do you understand? Kind of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. So I feel like deaf adoptees by deaf parents have a deaf identity that is very strong. You know, deaf culture is important. We're, we're the same. We're deaf. It doesn't matter what if you're a person of color or not. You know, and I've really noticed that's very, very pervasive. Mm-hmm. And, but I think what's also important is to do that, um, that really, that digging in terms of your identity, identity, and developing, you know, the adoptive part of your identity. Yeah, I mean, it just adds another, a whole other wrinkle to the already complicated process of kind of figuring out who you are as an adoptee. <laughs> now you have um, being deaf on top of that and you have to search for that own community. I mean, this is a whole sub community. I want to applaud you on the work that you're doing. It's really, I I think groundbreaking in in the work that you're doing for a community that, you know, unfortunately for, for me, I didn't realize, and probably a lot of these filmmakers, documentarians, et cetera, they don't realize that there's a whole medium of people out there who aren't getting access uh, due to our ignorance, and, and I'm a part of that, um, of including a bunch of people who who need the same resources that are available to us. So I will definitely um, work very hard to caption this interview as well <laughs> and uh, make sure that everybody has access to it as much as possible because, you know, this is usually typically an audio podcast, but, um, you know, I, w- when I was making this, of course – I wasn't thinking of this community of deaf adoptees that do need to be exposed to the stories of other adoptees out there who might be in places like, you know, Cooperstown who don't have a whole lot of access to adoptee resources that are kind of coming to light as of late, especially with regards to the amount of adult adoptee resources and material that we're putting out into the community. Right. Exactly. And so also, I want to let you know, I've been involved with the um, the Adoption Citizenship Rights Act. Fantastic. That, that, that campaign, but I'm the only deaf person. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who are involved in that effort have been very supportive, and they've been really working hard to make sure that things are accessible for me. And they've been really working hard to make sure that I'm able to join um, and support that, you know, that that cause. And I, I recently was on Capitol Hill made an appointment, they brought in an interpreter for me uh, so that I could fully participate with the meeting. And it was just really amazing because I really never really, I never thought about the um, being involved as an activist in that way mm-hmm. and that dialogue about adoption issues is really crucial for the deaf community, especially when we're talking about you know, adoption rights, the adoption rights campaign. And the deaf community is saying things like, oh, we didn't know about that, we didn't realize that. So it made me realize that, you know, I need to make a vlog. I need, I'm, I'm hopefully we're going to do this soon in November um, because November is, you know, adoption awareness month. So I'd like to it make a, a vlog about this bill that they're trying to pass. And the, the deaf adoptees were adopted by deaf parents. It's not just specifically for them, but, you know, overall as a whole, you know, parents misunderstand things. Um, the State Department, the adoption agencies, Social Security, they don't always communicate with each other well, and there are a lot of misunderstandings that parents might have. So the mm-hmm. parents adopted 
are they always in the loop about these kinds of things? Do they, you know, are they thinking, oh, we adapted, everything's all good? Right. Uh, you know, in terms of the official U.S. citizenship, you know, how does that work? So I would like to explain, you know, right before, so for right before applying for college, um, you know, I'm sorry, this is the interview, I'm clarifying. So let's say a, a deaf person is applying for, who is adopted and applying for a university and they're going through the application process and they have to sign them as an international student because they don't have the U.S. citizenship. Mm. So the adoptive parents, you know, decided that all the five adoptive sisters, um, they need to get the U.S. citizenship at the same time. And that's when I realized how many deaf adoptees maybe are unaware today that they don't have U.S. citizenship until they go through that, you know, application process of going to school. So that's why I'm really fighting and advocating to make sure that deaf adoptees are aware of this issue as well, just to make sure they check in and they do their due diligence to make sure, because they might be risk of being deported. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's one thing, you know, of course, this past week, uh, we've had the whole Adam Crasper story kind of have a watershed moment in the, in the fact that uh, that judge decided that he's going to be deported, uh, unfortunately. And... You know, the one thing I was talking with uh, Sharon Pine about was that the, the silver lining is that the adoptee rights campaign now is getting a lot of media exposure that previously wasn't there. Adoptee rights campaign is getting a lot of exposure. And hopefully, uh, you know, we're, of course, in a tumultuous political situation right now with the upcoming election. But if it doesn't get passed by the time that that happens, hopefully next year. Uh, because of this, we can start to see some traction in on the Hill, in the Oval Office, whoever occupies both of those with regards to adoptee rights, getting citizenship for all adoptees and making sure that people aren't being left behind because of this really stupid oversight and loophole uh, that ended up in our legislation. Right, right, exactly. Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for all of the amazing work that you're doing, the groundbreaking work that you're doing with regards to a whole subculture of adoptees. And I want to thank you for making me and kind of forcing me to expose the podcast and the show as another resource for adoptees out there. Um, and hopefully this gains a lot of exposure as well. And that more uh, documentarians, filmmakers, other adoptees who are putting resources out into the world, they will also realize that there is a whole other community within the adoptee community that also needs the resources that we're putting out there available made to them. Yes, thank you so much. It has really been a pleasure. It's been great to talk for you and talk with you. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Jenna for making the communication possible as well. Uh, again, I want to thank you for... Uh, coming on the show and exposing me to this whole other community and this will go up on YouTube which is not the way the show usually goes but we are going to do kind of a simulcast on YouTube and I'm going to take the audio portion and put it onto uh, the show as well so this has been a real pleasure and I want to thank you for all the work that you do and for taking the time to come on the show yeah it's been my pleasure thank you so much all right thank you we'll, we'll next time I'm in DC we'll have to get Korean food we'll get <laughs> Oh, yes, please. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks.
All right. And that was my conversation with Niall Frank and Jenna Williamson interpreting for us. Thank you very much to the both of them, Niall, especially for sharing her story. I'm really happy that we got the chance and the opportunity to do this and to shed on light on stories that we typically don't get to hear or see in the case of YouTube. And I hope you guys get the chance, if you uh, like this one, to check out past episodes of The Rambler. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes, on Google Play, on Podbean, and the last two episodes are always available on SoundCloud. I would appreciate you guys if you uh, reviewed it, if you left a nice uh, little review there and gave a little rating on iTunes. Those do matter. They matter to, to me and they matter to iTunes, so I really appreciate it. And help lend uh, and shine a light on adoptee stories out there because they're very important. And uh, I think and I think you would agree, too, if you're listening to this, that they need to be heard and more need to be heard as well. Uh, next week, you guys can look forward to an interview with Sabom Suhu, uh, who is a fan of the show, who is a past listener and who has written me uh, a very nice email. I'm not going to read it right now. We'll we'll talk a little bit about that next week. And they're also going to get a little bit of an update with Emily Kessel, uh, who you may have heard on past episodes. You can check her out on uh, past episodes of The Rambler, including a full conversation with Emily, as well as some updates. So uh, this is going to be another update regarding the Adoptee Citizenship Act and uh, its status on the Hill, especially after the election and what's been happening over there. So you have that to look forward to as well. If you would like to be a guest on the Rambler. Please, please send me an email. My email is therambleradhd at gmail.com. You can always follow me on Twitter at therambleradhd. You can DM me there if you uh, want to come on the show, and you can like my Facebook page, and that is at facebook.com slash therambleradhd. Again, you can get in touch with me there. Send me an inbox message, and I will reply to you as soon as I possibly can. And I encourage you guys to uh, to do that, to come on the show and to share your story because I guarantee, I guarantee that you have stories to tell and to expose the rest of the adoptee community to, and you are a very special person, and I want to recognize that first and foremost. And the more we tell our stories, the stronger our community gets, and uh, I, I feel like, you know, adoptees that may be living in disparate environments, like in the middle of nowhere, or even if they are in big cities like New York and San Francisco and places like that, uh, if they haven't heard these things before, maybe they're feeling alone about their their feelings. And I encourage them not just to listen to podcasts like mine or like Adoptees On or Adapted. Those are other podcasts out there that you can listen to. But check out blogs like the ones by Wendy Marie, like We The Lees, like uh, a bunch of people out there. And check all that material out. And the other thing is, uh, share your story. I think that's really the important part of this is, and the point of this whole ramble at the end here is, uh, to share your story and be comfortable sharing your story because the more we share our stories, the stronger as a community we get. All right, listen, I'm out of breath. I did that all in one breath. Uh, Stick around next week when we talk to Sabum Suhu. I appreciate you guys listening. Oh, music today provided by The Bell and Needle Drop Records and a collective effort. And you can find them on SoundCloud. And you're listening to them right now. Uh, That's it. That's all I got this week. I will catch you guys next week. Peace out.